Hello, and welcome back to Real-Time Strategy, a podcast all about the gaming industry. I'm one of your hosts, Caitlin Redwing, joined once again by my co-host, Sam Mosher. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm great. Uh, We have a... This is our dream, Caitlin. We have an episode approaching us that is about gaming, but is also about pop culture and entertainment. We try to force movie talk into this podcast all the time. We finally achieved an episode where it happens organically. How are you? I'm doing good and totally agree. This is like our bread and butter and the perfect mesh of our interests, Um, especially a show that was adapted from one of my favorite video games ever. Actually, my the favorite video game. Uh, So... I'm really excited to our conversation, and I'm even more excited because this week we are joined by The Ringer staff writer and TV expert Allison Herman to discuss this year's TV sensation, The Last of Us. So thank you so much for joining us, Allison. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you guys so much for having me. Of course. Yeah, so we can go ahead and dive right in. First off, we'll ask you, we like to ask our quest, our quests. I'm really like... I'm going to be butchering everything I'm saying today. It's just, it's a Monday. I like it, Kaylin. Questions you ask guests are quest or quest- quest- <laughs> Quest- Gu- questions. Questions. There you go. Yeah, there we go. It's a new word we've made up. Uh, we like to ask our guests to get to know you questions. And since you are the TV expert, I'm really looking forward to what your answers are for these. So the first one is, what is your favorite TV show? Uh, This is going to be the most boring and basic answer of all time, but um, I got to be me. I think Mad Men is the best TV show that has ever been made, possibly will ever be made, TBD, but that's that's where my loyalties lie. Interesting. I don't know why when you started off, I thought you were going to say Lost, because I feel like that (laughs) is just what everyone always says. Um, Mad Men is a good answer. I like it. It's fun because there's a pantheon of like, I, is she going to say The Sopranos? Is she going to say The Wire? Is she going to say Mad Men? I feel like that's kind of the holy trinity right now. Maybe you sometimes get a, the Americans. Um. <laughs> I, I think the pantheon, the Mount Rushmore, if you will, yeah. is those three in Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, yes, And I do think it says a lot about you. And obviously there's kind of like distinctions within those, like the Sopranos of Mad Men are like inherently connected through who worked on them. But... I do think it says a lot, like, which one of those four you naturally gravitate towards, and, and Mad Men is mine by by a mile. I love that. Caitlin, what's your answer? I, like, I just, I'm the worst, and I've watched <laughs> a lot of TV, but I feel like I don't have a favorite television show, so I have, I feel like my answer is always, like, recency bias. Like, I just have, like, this is my most recent favorite show. There's not one that I, like... It's just very strange. I don't know why I can't come up with an answer, but my first instinct right now is like, I just loved Station Eleven mm. so much. And I think about it all the time and it just came out like on DVD and of course bought it. Like we'll watch it multiple times. Um, the only other television show I like own is Chernobyl by Craig Mason, which is fitting for this Topical. episode. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I... I haven't watched Breaking Bad. I feel like I've said that before in this podcast. I have tried a lot of the, yeah, the pantheon of television shows I didn't finish. Again, my brain should be studied. Who knows what's wrong with it? But yeah, right now I'm going to say Station Eleven. I think it was beautiful storytelling. Um, Also 
relevant to The Last of Us. Just It's also one of my favorite books, so that also plays into it. Uh, Sam, what is yours? My favorite BoJack Horseman. Uh, it hit me at the right time I, I needed it or maybe didn't need it, but it really emotionally resonated with me. Uh, probably, and then like, I'm also, I, Breaking Bad and Sopranos, I love. I have not, Mad Men is very hard to watch nowadays, or at least it's not very fun to watch because last time I checked it was on IMDb TV and the commercials or ads don't even come in when they were uh, commercials on air. They just kind of, an AI algorithm just drops ads whenever. So it's kind of a bummer of like to go back to right now, but I, I, I intend to uh check it off my list eventually to be fair mad men commercials were like never at a logical place because i think matthew (laughs) weiner just like refused to write his show with commercial breaks in mind so like that's very true to the original experience of watching the show (laughs) and like basically mid-sentence you would suddenly get like a chevy silverado on your screen and you'd be like what's (laughs) happening that's good to know all right well then maybe i'll i'll get over it It's also something I didn't think about is having to write your show with like thinking of advertisements as you're writing it. I don't think, I think I would do the same thing and I wouldn't be able to think about where is a good placement for an ad. I'd just be writing the show. I've actually, when I've talked to people, um, you know, obviously it's like very recent that people would know or assume that their show wouldn't have any ad breaks. Like that's very unique to the premium cable and streaming era. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to a lot of TV writers who were like, no, it's like very good to have internal structure. Like um, Mm. you on Netflix was originally on Lifetime. So they originally started writing it with like natural commercial breaks. And then if you watch it now, like you'll notice they like cut to black about like four or five times an episode. And it's very like, oh, we just decided to keep writing it this way because like it's better for tension and, you know, making it not feel like a sort of formless blob. But yeah, yeah, it is funny, like how TV sort of changes in response to like how it's presented to people. Yeah, you're almost thinking of it like instead of like a three story arc, it's like, okay, how many ads would it normally have? Like there's like four breaks. So you've got like a five act structure, I guess. Yeah, something like that. That's or five vignettes. I uh, just finished a rewatch of Better Call Saul's last season and it's funny, both AMC shows Mad Men and Breaking Bad slash Better Call Saul. And I always felt like the Breaking Bad team, Vince Gilligan, Peter Gould, and, and co. were always really elegant with the way they cut to commercial. I thought they they were able to like ebb and out, ebb and flow through the tension of an ad break pretty well. Yeah, it's a it's a dying art, probably. Yeah, it <laughs> definitely is. <laughs> Um, yeah, I wonder if people who are really used to like the streaming, um, the HBO's shows of the world, if like that feels jarring to them. Cause I feel like to us, like, yeah, I grew up with ad breaks on TV. So when I am watching a show and it, it cuts to black, I'm not really noticing that. I'm just like, oh, it's just like a normal thing that happens in a TV show. I wonder if younger audiences are like, why is it doing this? Why is it cutting to black? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's go ahead and dive into our main topic of today. Which oh, Caitlin, is... before we do, there was one other oh, get to know you question. There was. Wow. Thanks. I totally thought we asked two questions. I'm going to roll today. <laughs> um, Allison, 
What is, yes, what is the TV show you have enjoyed writing about the most? Um, I actually don't know if this was like totally consistent across its run, but I think I probably have to mention Game of Thrones mm. because it was the first show that I wrote about consistently at a professional level, which obviously carries a great deal of significance. And then um, I've been a book reader since I was like 13 years old. So it's a story I have a very longstanding personal relationship with. And as the show unfolded, I feel like I got a lot of opportunities to address different aspects of it. And obviously there was just like a gigantic audience for writing about Game of Thrones. So there was something really exciting about getting to engage with people in real time about this thing that like everyone you knew was experiencing at the same time. Yeah, that was actually, I think I can pretty confidently say the first TV show that I actually started reading articles about because they're just, I hadn't read the books. So I wanted to know like, what is all the lore? Like, what do these scenes mean? And I probably read your work, Allison, just like digesting and breaking down everything that is Game of Thrones because it is a monster show and there's so much that went into it. Um, yeah, it's, I look back on those years with fondness. It was, what a great show, just like Sunday nights and yeah, did not die a dignified death, unfortunately. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, at least we all shared that as well. <laughs> I was trying to think of a nice way to put that. You you did that nicely. Because I was <laughs> like, I don't even know how to talk about the ending. Um, all right. So those were our two get to know you questions. But speaking uh, of Sunday nights. Yeah. Speaking of Sunday nights, we had another Sunday night show that just ended, which was The Last of Us. Um, pretty much, yeah, everyone who is listening to this podcast has probably played that game and is familiar and has watched the show. If you haven't played the game, um, or watched the show, maybe don't listen to this podcast. Or if you don't mind about spoilers, continue to listen. Um, so I guess, yeah, to start off, what, at like a high level, Allison, we'll, we'll talk about this, our answers as well, but like, what were your thoughts on the show overall? Um, so I feel like I have to first confess my priors here, which is that I actually have not played the game and I came into this, um, pretty new, although to, you know, know, make sure I knew what I was talking about. Like I talked Mm -hmm. to friends who'd played it. I read articles about it. I kind of did my research on what the gameplay was like and my sort of macro understanding of the show is that it is an extremely faithful adaptation. And I think as such sort of puts a ceiling on itself a little bit. Like I think my favorite adaptations are the ones that tend to push the text forward or put their own real stamp on it. And I think this one largely excelled obviously in the production value. I think it's incredibly well executed from that perspective. Like it creates a world and you feel like you're in it and it doesn't feel like that classic TV genre. Like you can sort of see the soundstage in the background mm-hmm. Um, And then the acting and performances and casting, I thought, were just uniformly incredibly strong. And that's a testament to Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann, who helped adapt the game. And I think the ways that they chose to augment and adapt the show and put their own stamp on it were very much playing into those strengths over the course of this season. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm actually really glad you 
haven't played the game because something that I have found difficult from my perspective is watching it and knowing like I'm like is it pulling it off in the right way because I'm like I have such a background and love for these characters and the story I'm like I already knew going into it I'm most likely going to enjoy it if it's a faithful adaptation um so knowing that you didn't play the game and just watched the show it's I'm glad to hear like yes they did pull off some things well yeah I uh because similarly I found the because the adaptation that is most interesting from someone who's played the game like in the margins kind of like you said finding ways to expound upon the game's you know core perspective which is Joel um and then so when we get you know whether it's episode three with uh Bill and Frank or certain cold opens before the intro hits I've really enjoyed that but I'm like to second Caitlin happy to have her perspective of somebody who isn't as intimately familiar with the journey as us um which I guess to talk about the journey, Allison, what were your favorite moments from the season thus far? What moments didn't land as effectively? Um, I think my favorite moments were, again, playing into what the show was able to add to the game, even though I hadn't played the game and I wasn't quite in the moment as directly able to pinpoint, like, oh, this is a deviation. I think the parts of the show... I think TV in general, frankly, like really succeeds when it embraces the constraints or just like natural characteristics of the medium and part of the characteristics of a TV show as opposed to a video game or even a film is that you don't or can't really just have one point of view character the whole time. Like you have to kind of build out other perspectives and you're able to do that because the camera is this like floating third party and is not like anchored to a single person. And so I think the show's best additions were obviously the third episode, which was a standalone um, kind of flashback to this extended relationship between the characters, Bill and Frank, that you don't see really at all in the game. And um, the sort of arc in the fourth and fifth episodes in Kansas City, where you meet Melanie Linsky's resistance leader, who again is new to the show, and you end up building out her perspective on things vis-a-vis the characters we already knew. And I think it's very additive and plays into what the game was already doing, but helps the TV show do it in a TV showy way. Yeah, it. I loved Melanie Linsky's character. I also just loving this moment for her between Yellow Jackets and The Last of Us. And she just, was, she was a great addition to the show, but really, and I won't talk about spoilers for the second game um, for part two, but who her character kind of represents in this show really sets up the second act of The Last of Us really well. Like it, it just gives you more context of like the kinds of people in this world, why they make the decisions that they make. Um, I mean, it's kind of like in a way similar to Joel's decision at the end of the game, like with Melanie, she's like, it's just like a kid. Like, I don't care if like that kid dies. Um, She's just like angry. And it's like, Joel doesn't care if like these other people die because he's angry and trying to save Ellie. And you just, you get to view these characters that are similar, but just from different point of views. and that's something that you you don't get in the game because, like you said, you play from a pretty singular 
uh, perspective or two perspectives when you play as Ellie when Joel is sick. But um, yeah, that's those are actually probably my two favorite arcs as well was the the Joel or the Bill and Frank episode and then Kansas City. I also want to highlight um, in terms of looking at it as an adaptation, uh, something that got lost, not lost a bit, but other things were prioritized later on the season were the kind of foregrounding and explanations that happened with the outbreak. The uh, first scene in the show is so chilling. Um, the talk show in the 60s where they're explaining this idea of the cordyceps fungus and what it would take to mutate and infect humans. And of course, uh, you know, having just, you know, all of us been part of a global pandemic, uh, hearing that uh, on top of just everyday climate anxieties was really effective. Uh, And I was shocked to be just as moved in the second episode by the scenes in Jakarta um, which part of me was like, do I, do I, do I need to, do we need to know this much? Do we need to go to the yeast factories? But sure enough, they found a way to truly mine the horrors of, um, something like this happening. Yeah. I think it all like plays into what my next question is going to be is like, why does the last of us work as a TV show? And I think it really comes down to the changes that they made to honestly make it more horrific for the viewer when you can you can see the how this could be like our reality versus the game where it's like there's this the spores in the air and it doesn't really make sense that they would all just be like contained in certain small areas when it's the air if there's spores in the air they're going to get everywhere everyone's going to be infected um but allison i'd like i'd like your perspective of what you think made this a pretty successful TV show week after week? I mean, the answer Craig Mazin would give in interviews for like why he chose this as his big swing after Chernobyl became such an unlikely success was that, you know, The Last of Us partly works so well as a, you know, not just a TV show in general, but like specifically a prestige Sunday night HBO tenfold kind of TV show is like the material already was pretty close to or was a good fit for that kind of treatment. I mean, obviously like we're about to get a Mario movie and we've already gotten like a Sonic movie. And like, I don't think there's anything wrong with the sort of like big loud CGI heavy kids movies that those are, but like, that's what that material calls for. And like what the last of us calls for is something that is already much more character focused than the typical video game from my understanding um is much more tightly anchored to a single narrative than the usual video games compared to like a totally open world setup where you just kind of choose your own adventure um and has like very consistent and specific themes that a tv writer can be like okay like i obviously can't like replicate the experience of gameplay for hours on end but like I know what the story wants to say and I can put my own spin on it or like render new situations in that voice that I know really well so I think it was set up for success and I think you can tell that because like I said like the adaptation by all accounts even as someone who has not played the game is incredibly faithful like there are shot-for-shot recreations, there are word-for-word excerpts from dialogue, there's, um, 
you know, the Easter eggy use of like voice character, voice actors from the game as cameo characters in the show. Um, you just get the sense that like they understood that they didn't want to fix what isn't broken. And so they have the same starting point and a lot of the same stopping points and the same conclusion. And what they do is they kind of tool around with who we're seeing on screen, where we go, who we meet, etc. But like the structure, they just don't touch as much because there's not really a huge need to. Speaking of the structure, Allison, from someone who didn't play the game, and of course, Caitlin, I'm like, I'm curious on your take too. What did you all think of the structure of this? I mean, it, it lends itself quite naturally to TV with the chapter or level-based nature of the game breaking up into these nine chapters. Um, I heard some complaints that it felt a bit, maybe not, maybe repetitive in the way that we meet characters who are likely doomed either at the end of that episode or the next one. Um, did that grow tired for either of you or did you still find it to emotionally land where it was trying to? I think, um, you know, it's always hard to know how to account for this as a critic because what HBO did was they just gave us like all mm. nine episodes of the show. And so I was able to kind of coast through them pretty quickly. And um, I do think that ex affects the viewing experience and that it maybe didn't wear on me as much as the viewer. But again, like you said, like TV in general is a very episodic structure. I think we're experiencing right now this pendulum swing after streaming incentivized mm -hmm. like really intense serialization. So, you know, the other big hit of the early stretch of this year was Poker Face, which is extremely... <laughs> Um, standalone episodic and that Natasha Leone is the only recurring actor except for like Benjamin Bratt across the 10 episodes. And um, I do think it was well suited to TV to have the kind of, there's only two constants and everything else from location to characters flows from episode to episode. But I do think there is a counter argument. Um, my friend Philip Masiak wrote a really great piece for the New Republic that kind of argued that the fact that we don't have sustained relationships with anyone outside Joel and Ellie ends up undercutting the show's humanism a little bit. So it didn't bother me, but I understand that it could, you know, maybe grow tiring for other people. Yeah, I, I agree with that because I was going to say one of my... I only have a few like complaints in a way of the show is that I feel like we didn't have a lot of time with a lot of these like really stable characters. And even with Ellie and Joel, I like almost wish we had like filler episodes or just kind of like breaks between each episode. I feel like, like there's like a major event that happened and it started and ended other than like Kansas City had a two episode um, arc. But yeah, I, I think my, my main complaint was just like, I feel like everything was going very quickly and you'd get introduced to characters and then they would leave pretty quickly. Um, and I think that I feel that way because it was week to week and like with the last episode being like 40 minutes, I always just felt like I didn't have enough time with the show every week. Yeah. Besides episode three, that was very long. But And I would have liked if it was longer. <laughs> Worthwhile. Yeah. Would have watched a feature length. That brings me to, I think, the most interesting debate that is happening after the finale, um, and, and specifically with audiences who have played the game. 
of this idea of what was lost, bringing it down to the story's most important beats. Um, because, you know, I always say like, if you go to YouTube and you like look up the last of us, the movie, these like YouTube super cuts where people only pull the cutscenes out, um, the big moments that drive the plot. It's something similar in length. I actually, I think Allison, I was reading your story or it might've been Ben Lindbergh's. It was at the ringer either way about how that is seven hours, HBO's version, roughly nine. Um, so of course a lot of that is the additional cold opens and the Frank and Bill stuff, uh, and the Melanie Linsky storyline. But of course the game itself took me 16 ish hours. So like what happens in those eight hours? Yeah. A lot of combat. A lot of people have noted that there aren't a whole lot of clickers and, you know, big action set pieces in the show. But another thing people are noting is are missing are these smaller contextual moments that happen between Joel and Ellie, like finding a comic book and Ellie makes a little quip and, and Joel says something in return. I think personally, as somebody who really loves the game, those small elements really add up to making the ending even more effective, even if it did still work for me in the TV format. Allison, Caitlin, what was your experience watching the Joel and Ellie bond over the course of the nine episodes? Do you feel like it was, you know, satisfyingly laid out for you? It's funny hearing you describe like what's potentially lost by cutting out time. It makes me think about how that's sort of the opposite problem you have normally when um, adapting something for TV, like mostly TV is naturally a longer format than films or most books. And it usually requires like padding it out and adding Mm -hmm. new things. And that's usually the challenge of like expanding to fill the space as opposed to like a nine hour season of television actually requiring you to cut down like about half of half 16 hour gameplay. Um, Again, as someone who like didn't, experience that side of the story I thought Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey did an incredible job cultivating the relationship between these characters and you know the show like skips around a lot in location and time and I think they're able to subtly communicate like even if you didn't see like x weeks on the road like here's how that has registered and like increased intimacy or increase withdrawal or what have you. And like a lot of that is, is put on the actors and I think they rose to the occasion. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel if their acting hadn't been as up to par, it would not have worked as well um, with the limited, I feel like time constraints those characters had together, even though they're consistent throughout the show. It Joel was like sick and Ellie was on her own and yeah, we jump around and, uh, but yeah, no, that's good to hear. I, again, like I said earlier, I was like, I genuinely could not tell if it was really working because to me, I'm like, it. I already know their relationship. I already know how it grows because I've I've seen and I've played it multiple times. Um, but I mean, I just, yeah. Bella and Pedro were phenomenal in their roles and they brought more things to their performances that we hadn't seen before. Um especially like just setting up those characters for the future. I think this did it even more justice and it gave Ellie more agency in the show. Um, I really loved that detail in episode two or is it one when, when they finally reach the outside of the QZ and Joel is beating that 
officer to death and you just it kind of focuses on ellie's like reaction to that and how she gets excited and i know they've talked about this in the after the episode stuff but seeing that spark in her that's just so early on and you're like her growth as a character i think is done better in the show yeah, I believe that was the ending of the first of the premiere, which, fun fact for those who didn't know, it was a 10-episode order, um, but they the first episode was originally going to end after Joel throws that kid's body in the fire in Boston, right. which would have been... Ooh, I, I'm curious how many people would have come back to episode two after that one. I think they very smartly chose to combine the first two episodes, of which the second half included his meeting with Ellie and you know the setup of their their journey um yeah completely agree about the performances really I mean like it's this is not a detraction from the show it's really to the testament that like their performances are so strong that you're able to fill in all these gaps of like you said Allison what happens between these major milestones um I guess like yeah speaking of performances too and because I've got the Oscars on my brain I mean, we're probably expecting Emmy nominations for Bella and probably Pedro. I'm not sure if that's wishful thinking, Allison. I'd love your thoughts on how you think, um, I know it's early, but how that the Emmy noms are going to go this year. The nature of the way Emmy nominations work means that they are even more of a popularity contest than like award shows inherently are. Um, They've made sort of an interesting change in the bylaws so that basically you're allowed to like nominate as many people in a given category as you want, which like sounds like it would be great for diversifying stuff on paper, but in practice means that like the shows that more people put on their ballots are the ones that end right. up breaking through because people are like, oh, I'll do like the standard ones that everyone's seen and also and also my own individual picks. And mm-hmm. um, so, I mean, like not to besmirch the accomplishments of The Last of Us or its performers at all, but it's almost like this automatic, like, well, it was the biggest show on TV um, and the kind of people who vote for the Emmys are not um, professional critics who have to watch as much as they can. It's people who are like busy making TV, which means that they are only going to make time for a limited number of series. And it's very likely that those series would include The Last of Us. So I think I would be like absolutely shocked if The Last of Us were not one of the bigger uh, contenders at this year's Emmys in the in the drama category. I had no idea how the nomination process went for the Emmys, so my entire perspective has now changed. Um, When did they change those bylaws? They've changed the bylaws in, like, a lot of different ways over the years. So, like, it used to be that they would have these things called, like, blue ribbon panels, where the idea was to, like, confirm that you'd seen as much as possible, but then, of course the kinds of people who were eligible to serve on those panels were disproportionately, like maybe older voters who'd retired and had more time on their hands, which maybe exerted a more like conservative influence on the kinds of shows that were eligible for Emmys. So the thing about these award shows is like, they're always retooling their bylaws to kind of respond to perceived issues in the show. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way the Emmys have changed was like, okay, we need to start acknowledging the way TV has changed. Um, There's just more out there. Um, You know, Modern Family winning for five years in a row, I think, is something that no one wants to see happen again. 
And so they've corrected for that, but that introduces like its own sort of systemic biases, which is just like the mm-hmm. nature of designing these things. And that's uh, to recommend uh, one of Allison's pieces that touches on The Last of Us, comparing it to Station Eleven. Uh, that point about the reach of shows and their popularity probably explains why our, our beloved Station Eleven didn't receive. It received some nominations, but not enough and, and not enough wins uh, last year. Yeah, I mean, it was Station Eleven. I feel bad for how it got rolled out and treated. Like, I think it came a little too soon after the pandemic and people maybe weren't as ready for that kind of fiction as they were. You know, when The Last of Us premiered, its source material was not as well known or beloved as The Last of Us. Um, And it was also released in December, which like, Again, weird quirk of how these things work meant it did not end up on a lot of best of lists because it was only partway done and, you know, or it was after a lot of people had already filed their stuff. So that's usually a good way for critics to, like, promote their favorites. And so I think it has, like, a very small and very fervent fan base, but it just didn't break into that larger cultural conversation in the same way, even though it's equally, if not more, deserving. Allison, as a longtime consumer of end of year lists, uh, the Ringers, the Watch podcast, this conversation is like catnip to me. I could talk about it all for for another hour. Uh, but I guess getting back to the last of us, but can, but looking at Station Eleven, I kind of want to dig into thematically uh, the Last of Us as a show. I'm curious what you know, Caitlin. You love Chernobyl, Allison. You were talking about you know Craig's comments about making it. Uh, what thematically drew HBO Craig to turning this into a TV show? Um, obviously, if you tune into the behind the episode, there's going to be a lot of you know talk about what you know the creator Neil says the the game series is all about about love and you know the potentially corruptions or um, you know personal desires that drive that. Uh, but I also think there is something about organizations and and like the the doubt that comes from them like whether it's you know Chernobyl's like systemic failures that led to this or here in The Last of Us Joel's distrust of societies or like these like governmental organizations at large I wonder if that's something that drew Craig's interest I'm curious what your two takes are on like what thematically was brought here from the show Yeah, I mean, there's obviously the shared theme of, like, disaster and the um, kind of arrangement of individuals versus institutions. I think that's totally right. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Chernobyl, it's very much like the institutions at the Soviet Union were not equipped to handle this crisis. And in The Last of Us, um, I think something that is actually really interesting about The Last of Us compared to other kind of post-apocalyptic worlds is, like, it's almost not that interested in world building. Like the fact that Fedra is a thing is sort of alluded to. And the fact that the fireflies are also a thing is sort of alluded to, but like the details that you have about both of those organizations and how they work and what the conflicts are between them and what the history of their engagement with each other is, is like, I just talked for longer than I could probably describe what those (laughs) things are. Um, And it's very much a heavy emphasis on, like, individual characters and decisions and not necessarily in a way that's, like, the individual is always better than the institution, 
but that's clearly like where the interests of the story lie. And so I could kind of see why Craig Mazin would be interested in another like way into a systemic or in the case of the last of us, obviously global situation where our path into it are these individual characters that we can really like latch onto and form a relationship with. Yeah. He, he really knows how to focus on like individuals and their reactions and choices when faced with disaster and in Chernobyl, it's, it really is a lot about like humans relationship with nature and like, our love and then also lack of love for nature with like the institutions and how they reacted to this just horrifying disaster. Um, yeah. I feel like his, his themes are not one-to-one, but they're very similar in the, what he kind of focuses on when faced with these massive disasters and how people react to them. Now, of course, when talking about the individuals that make up the last of us, I, we've danced around it impressively longer than I thought we would. Uh, I, I do want to talk about the finale. So, uh, you know, if you've made it this long talking broadly about the show, we are going to get into specifics of how it ends. Uh, Allison, I, I am most curious, like, what was your reaction to how the finale plays out? Of course, as Caitlin noted, we both played the game. We know what this has been building toward the whole time was Joel's actions. Uh, for those who are unaware, uh, you know, saving Ellie from a procedure that would have uh, most likely killed her, but developed, but would have most likely made a cure in the process uh, and killing lots of people along the way. Uh, what was your reaction to that? Well, I did have it uh, inadvertently spoiled ah. for me on Twitter while I was watching ah. the screener. So it wasn't a total surprise, but I do think, um, you know, you alluded Caitlin to the redemptive power of love concept. And what I actually really liked about the ending is that it really pushes back against that. Um, and so do other um, scenarios we've encountered along the way, especially the Kansas city one. And I think in a lot of ways, the last of us is less interested in pushing back or subverting uh, certain tropes of apocalypse fiction, like station 11 made a very, you know, it's not dark. Like visually, it's very bright. It is like there, there's colors everywhere. It is specifically not really concerned with survival. It's concerned with these larger questions of art and what it, what we actually want to preserve and how we build a civilization from a blank slate, etc. And The Last of Us is much more like it is a very artful and well rendered zombie apocalypse, but it is a very recognizable zombie apocalypse and. I really enjoyed how the finale takes, you know, one of the tropes of these sort of things um, of not just zombie fiction, but obviously, you know, Pedro Pascal is well known from The Mandalorian. Like that's a whole, you know, older fighter takes younger vulnerable charge under his wing and like rediscovers this connection to his more human empathetic self is itself a trope. And I like how The Last of Us complicates that and suggests like, it's not entirely a positive. It's just a natural response. And like love can lead you to do extraordinary things. And it can also lead you to do incredibly destructive, self-centered, short-sighted things. And um, I don't think it comes down super hard in either direction. Like who knows if killing Ellie would have 
actually rendered a cure. Like they don't actually give her a choice in the matter. You know, it's not ideal. Um, But I like that it, you know, also pushes us against just like, well, like they found each other and like, that's great. And that's it. Um, I think it ends in a more ambivalent place that made me like respect the buildup a little more. Yeah. I, I know. I, I feel like I've had this debate in my head for 10 years and I mean, I don't think it ever boils down to is Joel right or wrong. I think that's the wrong question because it, it really is just what is love going to make you do? And sometimes that's destructive choices. Um, but like you said, we don't know if they would have found a cure. They said we think it will, and but they've never, they've never had an infected person to do these things with. And the first thing they want to do is kill that person to try and find a cure that they're not sure they can find. I feel like any parent in that position, and yes, he's not uh, Ellie's birth father, but it's pretty alluded to that he now views her as his daughter um, or a daughter figure that it's it's no question in his mind or any parent's mind that they're going to do what they can to save that child, especially under the circumstances. And yeah. I found the ending to be just as uh effective or affecting as it was in the game if not evoking different emotions in me caitlin i'm curious if you had the same experience with the game being so predominantly from from joel's perspective um you there's less doubt about like going through with it like you still know that there's obviously like clearly a lot of i mean there's nothing good per se about it but you get it um and you've been Killing enemies, Fedra, Clicker, Raider, however you, you know, whatever you you want uh, for the 15 hours leading up to that point. So that when this is the big climax of the game, um, it doesn't feel that shocking. However, as I, you know, kind of alluded to earlier, this show has, you know, left out maybe for budget reasons, but also because I think it's way more interested in the emotional side of The Last of Us, uh, these big action sequences and stuff. Uh, So when we get Joel's one-man raid on the hospital here in the finale. Uh, it's a lot more horrifying than it is in the game, to be frank. Yeah. Um, and even much so that that was one thing. But the thing that even left a, a worse taste in my mouth was uh, how chipper Joel was when he was walking Ellie to the top of that hill in the final scene. And he's talking about how uh, Ellie and his daughter would have got along so well. And Ellie's just really quiet. I'm like... Ooh, this just feels kind of bad, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because to him, he he doesn't think their relationship has changed, mm-hmm. but to Ellie, it has, and it always will have changed. I mean, it ends with her saying, okay, that's, to me, just her coming to terms with that understanding of, like, things will never be the same between them again. She she knows, um, but she's not going to push it any further than right now they're just going to move forward with her newfound perspective of joel allison having not had a a preformed understanding of their relationship um what was your thoughts on the violence you know depicted in the finale and you know that last conversation they have before they get back to wyoming I mean, I thought it was very, like, well-established. Like, I think 
it doesn't feel unearned. We've seen Joel commit really incredible acts of brutality many times and allude to past acts of brutality and other people have alluded to that past, you know, his brother and his brother's new wife. And I think, um, like none of it felt like a shocking twist for twist's sake. It felt like the tragedy of inevitability, which I think is usually a more effective way to go. And yeah, again, like the way Pascal and Ramsey act that final scene, like you totally buy, it's almost like the show doesn't believe in the redemptive power of love, but you can see Joel buying into it and you can see that that's not actually going to pan out in the long run. Like he clearly thinks like, okay, I found this replacement for the biggest hole in my life that I've been walking around with for 20 years. And now that I've, you know, committed to this, I can now walk, walk forward on this path. And Ellie is so clearly like, I didn't ask for that. And also, um, like in so doing this, you have changed the way I see you in a way that I obviously wasn't too fully before because I'm a child. Um, and the fact that all of those dynamics are conveyed in just a few minutes of screen time, I thought it was great. And the fact that they feel very natural and earned, I thought was a testament to the to the writing. Yeah, I thought it was really effective. I mean, both in the game and to the show, I think it's the testament of the storytelling that, like you said, Allison, like it, it is uh, not rendering the show, like the, the, the writing is not rendering an opinion. It is leaving it up to the viewer to decide while still being able to clearly establish where these characters fall on that spectrum. Um, yeah, I, for one, am very excited. Like I was talking with some, some friends watching the show for the first time that it is such a, a weird sensation watching this ending play out again, almost 10 years later when it first released, uh, now knowing that there is more story. Uh, whereas that, conversation when you play it for the first time kind of in the years between 2013 to 2016 you thought that was it um that that was the last time we would ever see Joel and Ellie talk to each other in a you know informal storytelling um that that situ that that scenario can never be replicated because we now know there are there are more adventures to be had Caitlin I'm curious if like you know if you shared that kind of phenomenon I I didn't think about it Till you brought it up, but it's a good point to have. I think it, it makes it less devastating in a way. Because mm. I I remember those years between 2013 and 2016 and just being like furious. Of like, that's where you leave the relationship. Like, I need to know what happens next. Um, but knowing we get that, it's almost like a, a closure on is what we get. And we can now look forward to having that. That's a very good point. So, Allison, having how much of part two has been spoiled for you? I guess I, I, to be honest, reading your your pieces about the uh, the the show, I I couldn't tell you hadn't played the game. You alluded Same. to the themes of of uh, revenge in part two. How much do you know is coming? I'd say I know a decent amount. I know the general setup. I know that it follows Ellie as an adult, and I know like certain Easter eggs in the game, like um or Easter eggs in the first season, like the per the person Ellie yells at when she's at the compound is her future partner, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but what's mostly been conveyed to me is the theme, like the fact that violence begets violence and that revenge is a vicious cycle. And 
Um, I've just encountered that a lot in my, you know, just reading about the game from viewers or reading thoughts about the show from players of the game. And then additionally, I know, um, I don't know the specifics of why this is true, but I know that like they are, the fact that they are adapting it in multiple parts, which they just confirmed today as we're recording this, um, is from what I've heard very necessary based on the events of the game. And I also know that the second game is much more polarizing than the first game, although I could imagine that that is also the product of the fact that the sequel dropped in 2020, which seems like not an ideal time to drop a sequel to uh, (laughs) The Last of Us. It was like three months after the pandemic had started. It was June of 2020. Yeah, that was... What a time. (laughs) I remember staying up all night. Um, it is polarizing. I'm really looking forward to seeing how audiences take it, but it's, it's like twice as long as the first game. Like it's, yeah, multiple parts is needed because there's just so much more to that story. Um, it it just would be a disservice to try and do that in one season. I like, it's just not possible. So looking forward to part two, season two and three, uh, Allison, like, what's your? Are, do you feel satisfied with season one? Are you like eager for more story? What do you hope? You know, the future of the HBO adaptation like learns and takes away from the, this first installment. I think I was satisfied with the first season, and I'm curious how like the upcoming seasons sort of make a case for themselves. Um, I think the road trip structure was effective just because there was like a clear cut beginning and destination. I think if future installments borrow the same structure of, I know it's like Ellie and her partner instead of Ellie and Joel, but if it's sort of the similar, like we're just going to traverse America and see who we find. And um, I think that might wear down a little bit, but I'm sort of in a place of open-mindedness and the fact that I'm not like clamoring for more means that I'm kind of curious how, it argues its own case, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. For what it's worth, I yeah. think that was largely the reaction when the game part two was announced. Yeah. Like, do we want this? <laughs> I I remember going into it not expecting to love it as much as the first one. I think I love it more. Um, so without spoiling, I, they really do a good job of justifying the story in part two we just can't say like why that is because it's very intricate. Um, but I also want to say like there is traversal, but it's not the destination is not as far. I guess I'll say it's less like you get more time in each place. Mm-hmm. So I think even if there is some of that like road trip, I don't think it will be to the extent of what this first season won. So it'll, it will be different now. uh Enough speculation about about part two. Just looking at the success of Last of Us, uh, you know, this first season, like, what do you all... I mean, clearly it has a lot of just entertainment elements, but Allison, your piece about comparing it to Station Eleven intrigued me of, like, does this pandemic post-apocalyptic or, or maybe during apocalyptic uh, show, as you note in that piece, like, does it say anything about, like, the state of popular culture right now? I know, like, the zombie craze was almost felt like a decade ago when the game first released. So it's kind of interesting to see a quote unquote zombie show be back on the top of the TV charts. Like, 
does it say anything about our broader times or is it more just a good piece of genre storytelling? I mean, I do think there is that kind of like out of time feeling that works against the show a little bit. It's like working with a lot of very recognizable tropes. And I think it's more like executing on those tropes really well than trying to push them to a new place. So again, like I said at the beginning, it's not like the show falls short. It's more like it caps itself. It like is not maybe as ambitious as like a radical reimagining might be. Um, But I do think we also are in a place where having been through like a global airborne event ourselves in the last few years, like I definitely came out of that in a place of like, frankly, it made me like very cynical about our ability to collectively deal with stuff like that. I do not think I left it with a more flattering idea of, you know, human nature and, our collective action. And I think we saw a lot of people act in very like understandably self-interested ways during that time in a way that um, kind of maybe made me more receptive to the cynicism bordering on like total nihilism of the show where I'm like, yeah, it's bleak to watch week after week, but all of it registers to me. as like incredibly psychologically realistic, which is, Probably as much as you can ask from a show about, like, mutated mushroom zombies, uh, <laughs> like, infecting everyone with spores, you know? Yeah. I Part of me thinks that's why they don't show the infected as much as they are in the games, because you spend hours fighting hordes and r- trying to traverse, like, away from them. We had some... We had the scene in the museum and Kansas City with the horde there, and you get the bloater. Um but I think it was a good choice to kind of scale that back significantly. Just we've we've had The Walking Dead. We've had other zombie shows and mo- many movies. Um, so to really just focus on the human element and not the human versus infected element was it, it was in their favor. Yeah. Even if it's still bleak. And Allison, I find your perspective interesting about like the the reception to the nihilism or at the very least like cynicism of The Last of Us story, which, you know, does not, which I think also contributed, as you astutely pointed out, to the reception of part two, even not knowing exactly where that story goes. It's like that is an even more cynical um, kind of story. And I think uh, a lot of, you know, people were understandably not in the mood for that in the summer of 2020. Um, but there was an interesting New York times piece published after episode three came out about the last of us. I believe the headline read, uh, is in fact a conservative show. Um, and I don't know if either of you read it. Um, but it was commenting on how zombie fiction at large is kind of conservative in perspective by nature of, you know, these outbreaks happen and we inherently look inward and and fend for ourselves and, um, you know, me, myself, and I before the survival of anybody else, which is, you know, a a conservative perspective to have. Um, But, and then they published this after episode three where Bill and Frank have their, you know, kind of internal society just for them. But I think The Last of Us does make a case for, you know, society being, or like community, I should say, being the end goal. It just being something really hard to work toward. Um, Something that requires a lot of compromise and sympathy and... um, you know, uh, sharing perspective that frankly, that's what this franchise has been all about. Like you see it 
in the Wyoming scene uh, with that being the most positive look at community we get in this world but still at the same time it comes to the cost of those lines of dialogue being that oh people fear us they think we're monsters but that's the reputation we have to have to protect the sense of community we've built here um so yeah i guess it never really loses the cynicism even how (laughs) positive it gets (laughs) yeah i definitely think it's true like there are inherently conservative instincts i just don't think the last of us is necessarily any more guilty of that than as you pointed out like the entire genre and there is a a literal commune that is presented in a in a positive light um I think I wrote about this in my piece about episode five. Like, I think the way it counters it is, first of all, I think it's kind of a mistake to just read art by being like, well, this like has overtones of an ideology I don't agree with, so I can't engage with it. Um, You know, like, I don't really agree with like the military industrial complex, but I thought Top Gun Maverick was like a perfectly (laughs) enjoyable cinematic experience. And I think I'm capable of holding those two ideas in my head at the same time. And um, I think the way The Last of Us hedges that is I don't think it's like overt propaganda. It just has those undertones and the way it portrays something like, um, you know, the anti-fascist resistance leaders in Kansas City ultimately kind of falling victim to, um, you know, the instincts that they had to have to survive uh, totalitarianism. I thought the way that was treated was not like, oh, it's stupid to even try or, like, this is inevitable. It was just, like, this is hard. Like, this is understandable. Like, I didn't, you know, think it was demonizing the idea of trying to, like, attempt something better or saying that, like, the left is worse than the thing that it's – I think people were just imposing a lot of, like, contemporary political discourse onto it in a way that – I didn't think it was totally unwarranted, but I do think it's not an effective way of analyzing the show to just be like, well, it has these implications and therefore, because I disagree with that argument, I can't like condone anything else about the show, you know? Yeah, I agree. Sam, do you have any other questions about the show? I don't think so. Um, um, any other scenes or episodes or specific moments anyone want to highlight before we close out the review? Um, I found, I, you know, while we're performing the performances, of course, Pedro and Bella deserve all the flowers. I'm sure they'll be nominated come September. Uh, but I think the casting of Storm Reed as Riley is one I particularly mm-hmm. want to highlight. Uh, she was great in the Left Behind episode. Um, and, of course, Nick Offerman and uh, Murray Bartlett are great as Frank and Bill. Yeah, I I loved Anna Torv as uh, yes. Tess, Joel's partner. Um, just a wonderful kind of underutilized actor. Um, you know, I loved her in Mindhunter, but also thought that character was not always cultivated as well as it could have been. And it was nice to see her, you know, make a, like, very impactful impression in just a couple episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that... Losing Tess was more heartbreaking in the show than it was in the game, for sure. And that is largely a testament to Anna Torves. Also was a fan of her in Mindhunter, but unfortunately we didn't get um, the development of that character that I think it deserved. Um, so really looking forward to hopefully seeing her in more shows moving forward. Um, do we want to quick talk about just like 
adaptations in general. Maybe I, we've talked about it a little bit, but I am curious, Allison, um, <clears throat> what you think other video game adaptations can really take away and learn from The Last of Us. Because I know there are a ton that have been announced. Some are coming up soon, like the Mario movie. Um, but many are just like pre-production as of right now. We're on the cusp of prestige uh, video game, you know. There's a lot. Like Horizons coming to Netflix, God of War's coming to Amazon, Fallout's coming to Amazon. Yeah, well, I don't know if there's any shows that are attempting to do exactly what The Last of Us did, which is like, we're going to do like, not just a show, but like a super prestigious show. I mean, you know, Halo had an adaptation, which you would think would be... <laughs> the biggest things in sliced bread and like basically went down like a ton of bricks. Like obviously a lot of that had to do with the outlet that it was eventually aired on. But um, yeah, I think it's almost hard to like export lessons from this because Mm -hmm. like I said, it was so specific to like the last of us being really well suited to an HBO style television show. Um, But yeah, I think it has to do with paying attention both to like, the suitability of the original story and having the self-awareness to be like, this is a blockbuster versus like, this is maybe a little more, there's a little more for us to dig into. Yeah. And then, like I said, you know, playing into whatever new medium you choose. So with TV, like TV is a medium that rewards excavation of character and like multiplicity of perspectives. And that's exactly the direction in which the last of us decided to go. Yeah, I I know I was thinking about what my answer for this would be as well. And I was like, well, it's not even so much as like being faithful to the adaptation because we had like cyberpunk edge runners, which is wildly different than the game, but also very successful and beloved. Um, to me, really, it it is just finding the right partnership between a video game studio and a production studio, HBO and Naughty Dog worked together hand in hand Neil Druckmann had a lot of say in the show but obviously was like not the showrunner or director that was Craig Mazin uh Mason I keep saying Mazin um and like we know Illumination and Universal and Nintendo all are working very closely together on their upcoming movie it's just the difference to me really is working together because thinking about previous adaptations for video games to movies and tv shows it there really wasn't a uh consensus and relationship between two studios of working together on something it was really just movie and tv studios being like we know what's best for movie and tv and we're just gonna take your ip and story and make something of our own without truly understanding that relationship it has to video games and uh Allison, I like the point you made about the, what, what was the term? Like, multiplicity of perspective. Yeah. Um, that like, I think that is the biggest obstacle or roadblocks games have um, running up into becoming specifically TV. Movies can get away a bit more with just like having your, your protagonist. That's now your main character, your movie, even though there aren't many successful movie examples. Uh, but TV specifically, you can't really, uh, you know, shoulder a eight to 12 episode story on a single character. Um, and it was smart for the last of us, not just to branch the the story of part one 
onto Ellie as well, um, but to all these other side characters. It'll be interesting to see what, you know, things like God of War, which is all focused on Kratos, or Horizon, which is all focused on Aloy, like how those become hopefully ensemble-based, like, genre epics. I I guess we will have to wait and see. Yeah, I'm curious to see if this if this spurs more attempts, and if so, if those attempts kind of like take the right lessons away from this. Yeah, I I definitely think we're going to see more and more, and most of them are going to use The Last of Us as the shining bright example, um, whether that's for good or bad, because I don't think every video game can be adapt an adaptation. Um, but there are a lot that can be, and Sam, you've named a few, and there's also surprises. I feel like Cyberpunk Edge Runners was a surprise. I didn't think that would that would work. It's wildly different. Or um, Arcane. That was the other one I was going to name. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that one. Uh, another one that just kind of takes an IP and really has fun with it. Yeah, there are also good shows and films about books about video games like I really enjoy Mythic Quest on Apple as like a mm-hmm. workplace sitcom about video games that I love because it takes games like very seriously and it totally understands their appeal both for the audience and the creators and has fun with that setting but also is very much like a workplace sitcom yeah oh that's a great show I am not caught up in the last season it reminded me to catch up <laughs> All right. Well, Caitlin, any other questions for Allison before we wrap up? I don't think so. I think I think that was everything. And it was a really great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Allison. Was- Thank you for having me again. I, I apologize that I've been yawning a bit. It is the Monday <laughs> after the Oscars and I was working until like 11 p.m. last night. So I'm not I'm not at 100 percent my best. And I appreciate no you dealing with that. <laughs> I um. Also fell victim to, I wasn't working, but just watching the Oscars and then watched The Last of Us and was also up too late with the (laughs) time change and it's a Monday. Um, But for everyone listening, you can find Allison at The Ringer and you can follow her on Twitter at aherman2006. Um, Allison, anything else you want to plug anywhere else people can find you? No, uh, Twitter is unfortunately probably the place where I am most likely to be found. <laughs> we'll link to all of your Last of Us coverage in the description as well as your Twitter. Uh, great reads. I enjoyed all three of them leading up to this episode. Um, any a, a question just for myself selfishly, any TV recommendation? What should people be watching right now? I mean, we've already mentioned Melanie Linsky. Yellow Jackets is coming back very soon. I've been fortunate enough that I've been watching some screeners, and I think it, you know, keeps it up in season two. So I'm excited for that to uh, start again. Good to know. I actually just, (laughs) I binged season one like a month and a half ago. I was like, I can't believe I missed this show. Um that's yeah we're looking forward to it maybe after season two and three of the last of us come back (laughs) we'll talk about it then (laughs) or before but thank you once again for joining us it really was a it was a great conversation thank you guys all right well you can find me also at unfortunately twitter (laughs) and letterbox at caitlin redwing uh sam where can people find you you can find me everywhere 
including on Twitter and the superior social media platform Letterboxd at <laughs> Sam Scott Mosier. <laughs> you can find the show. Real-time strategy is not on Letterboxd yet, but if there's fan demand, we will go there. But for now, you can find us on Twitter at Real-Time Strats. Email us questions at podcast at triplepointpr.com. I think that's it. Yeah, maybe once they add TV shows to Letterboxd, we'll just we'll make a Real-Time Strats um, account and we'll review video game adaptations on there. Love it. All right. Thank you for listening in and until next time. Goodbye.